Welcome to episode three of The Vast Majority. I'm Micah Utrecht, managing editor of Jacobin. And I'm recording this in Chicago. And Chicago has been in the headlines recently because we just elected a ton of socialists to our city council. Six, to be exact, plus a handful of other strong progressive city council members. And those elections are a massive victory that is a testament to both the rising socialist movement in Chicago as well as the rest of the country. And it's also a testament to the strength of the city's broader working class movement. And one of the people who won in that string of socialist victories on the city council is Carlos Ramirez Rosa, who was the sitting alderman of the 35th Ward on the northwest side of Chicago. Uh, He's a member of the Democratic Socialists of America, the only sitting socialist on the city council. Uh, So he's the kind of elder statesman of this crop of socialist city council members in a way. And you may have heard of Carlos before because he drew some national headlines when just a couple of years ago he was running on a gubernatorial ticket as a lieutenant governor and was kicked off of that ticket because he refused to back off of his support for boycott, divestment, and sanctions against Israel. So he's somebody who has taken some very strong and uncompromising stances in favor of left-wing issues and has uh, paid the price uh, in terms of pushback from the uh, city and state's uh, political class. And so uh, I talked to him about his recent re-election, the role of uh, socialists in his campaign, and what the left uh, electoral prospects for the future in Chicago are going to look like. Alderman Carlos Rosa, welcome to The Vast Majority. Thank you for having me on. So you're fresh off of a re-election victory for your city council seat in the 35th Ward in Chicago. And I wanted to have you on because both it was a because it was a very hard fought uh, election in some ways. Although I will have to say, do have to say that uh, you know you're a polite guy, you're an elected official. You probably won't say this, so I will say this: you destroyed your opponent <laughs> by uh, twenty points in it, the first round of the election. It's not me; it's us, Micah. <laughs> okay, the movement destroyed <laughs> your opponent. By 20 points. Uh, And that is both um, a satisfactory result to those of us who uh, want to see a socialist reelected to city council, but also to people who have fought for things like affordable housing in this neighborhood. Your ward is, I think the majority of it is taken up by Logan Square. About a third of it, yeah. Which is a formerly working class Latino neighborhood. It still has a very strong uh, working class and, and Latino population, but it's one where gentrification is advancing very rapidly. On the north side of the city, it's probably the hottest real estate market in the city right now. Um, and so your race was a, a sort of a referendum on some things, especially affordable housing and, and real estate development in the city. And your opponent had a lot of money that was given to her by real estate developers in the city. And you really drew the ire of a lot of real estate developers <laughs> uh, in the city. It was real estate developers, I think, in particular, who were defining the, the, the anti-Rosa campaign. So can you just talk about 
how it came to be that that were the, those were the dynamics uh, of the race and why was it that you had uh, real estate developers willing to spend very large amounts of money to, uh, against you to try to defeat you? Yeah, so the 35th Ward takes in portions of five neighborhoods, uh, but the largest chunk of it is centered in Logan Square around the Logan Square Blue Line and Milwaukee Avenue. Uh, but it also takes in portions of a neighborhood just west of Logan Square called Hermosa, uh, which is overwhelmingly Latinx and working class. And in 2017, I believe, Crane's Chicago business said, if you can't afford to buy in Logan Square, because uh, now you have to spend 600000 to buy a two-flat, um, move west. Uh, go west to Hermosa. So Hermosa is a community that's uh, currently being uh, you know, targeted by developers for gentrification. And then the 35th Ward also goes north along Kimball and along Central Park into uh, the western portion of Albany Park. Uh, and Albany Park is another majority immigrant and working class neighborhood that's also being targeted for gentrification on the north side. And in my last four years, I've made it very clear that I'm going to stand with working class Chicagoans as they fight displacement. I'm going to stand for fully funded neighborhood schools. I'm going to stand up for diverse communities that are diverse, both racially and economically. Uh, And that means that I'm going to take certain stances. I'm going to stand up for affordable housing and want to see that built in the 35th Ward. I'm going to stand up for policies like rent control uh, so that we can, you know, take action to address displacement. And I'm also going to stand up to the developers and landlords that are kicking families out of their homes. Um, And I'm also going to ensure that, uh, you know, when development takes place in the 35th Ward, it's not because a campaign got a contribution from a developer, but because there was a community process where the community was empowered to have a real say over that development decision in their community. Those are all things that uh, property management companies and landlords and developers do not like. Um, And so they spent uh, those people, right, meaning developers and uh, big landlords and property managers spent about $200,000 in a bid to unseat me. Uh, So about two thirds of the money my opponent received this cycle. And this is in a city council race. And, you know, there's 50 city council seats all throughout the city, right? So $200,000 on one of the 50 races. Uh, It's sort of an astronomical amount of money. I mean, but you really polarize the race as one between the defender of the working class, the defender of, of, of people being able to stay in their homes versus one of people who, uh, of, of a def- an opponent who is backed by those developers. Yeah. So, you know, our opponent, when, when you have that much money sent, uh, you know, about 15 to 18 mailers, I, I lost track at one point, uh, my campaign sent a total of seven mailers. Um, and in uh, those mailers and in the conversations we had with voters on the door, we consistently said, you know, Carlos has been one of the most outspoken progressive leaders. He has stood up to big landlords evicting families from our community. He stood up to Mayor Rahm Emanuel and his corporate policies. And precisely because of that, he is now being targeted by, uh, you know, big landlords, by big developers, by Rahm Emanuel's donors uh, in one of the most uh, egregious, you know, negative campaigns uh, that our community has ever seen. Uh, Mailers saying that I'm a deadbeat, uh, you know, mailers saying, and, and this is this is you know how um, you know kind of dark they they get sometimes in these campaigns. Mailers saying that I had brought no new affordable housing to the ward, um, and so you know, kind of using the same you know policies that we've been fighting for to try and weaponize them against us, which wasn't true. We've actually built uh, you know upwards of fifty units of affordable housing in the thirty fifth ward during my time, um, and that was, that was very hard fought. 
uh, because we did not have an ally on the fifth floor. We would have built more, but for the fact that Mayor Rahm Emanuel didn't want to bring affordable housing to you know communities that were targeted for gentrification, like the one I represent. I thought it was really funny because I live in your ward, and so I would get these mailers. That's and right. They would send you <laughs> all of these mailers, and you'd see them, and you know, they, they always try to take a photo of you, the least flattering photo possible. They put like a weird filter on it to try to make you like uh, ugly and scary. Yeah, they messed I've, up my eye in one of them. Like, they like enlarged it. And <laughs> well, I have to say, for the most part, you were still, you know, you were you were looking like a snack. Thank and all you. of the Thank negative you. mailers, you're still looking very good. Yes. I was always looking like, did they find an ugly? Nope, they don't exist. <laughs> ugly photos of Carlos, they don't exist. Um, so, I mean, you even had uh, one of those developers, Mark Fishman, who's the largest developer in the Logan Square neighborhood. Um, he, there was a crazy story in which he bought the building that you uh, had your, your, uh, office located in. Yeah. So city council terms are four years. And so when I, uh, took office, I signed a four year lease, uh, at my predecessor's office. So I took it over. I said, this makes sense. It's right by the blue line stop. Um, it's right next to, you know, the heart of the ward. And, uh, several months later, I'm informed that uh, the developer who was my predecessor's biggest donor, who owns about $74 million worth of property in uh, the community, purchased uh, the office that I was located in and immediately just started messing with me. So it was like a massive power move. Um, But one of the first things he did is he started sending 30-day notices to the tenants that live there. So in the state of Illinois, uh, if you don't have a lease, your landlord just needs to give you a 30-day notice to tell you, hey, in 30 days, either you got to pay X amount of money uh, and your rent's going to double or triple, what have you, um, or you got to move out. Um, And in this case, what he was doing was doubling the rent and telling folks, if you can't pay this in 30 days, you got to move out. Um, And so folks in that building formed a tenant union. We asked to... uh, uh, we asked Mark Fishman if he would meet with the tenants, if he would work with them uh, to allow them to stay in their homes. He flat out refused. Uh, he has since done the same thing uh, to families in the winter. Um, so this is a guy, you know, that doesn't really care about the fabric of our community. He's seeking to maximize the amount of money he can extract from the neighborhood. And uh, I'm not, he's no fan of mine. I think it's important to bring up just because it shows what someone like you, you know, for people who are not in Chicago uh, and who are interested in running left campaigns, whether it's at a local level or a national level or state level, whatever, it shows the kind of pushback that you will get when you take those stances. I mean, like Mark Fishman was doing everything from the standard, like shoveling money to an opponent to doing petty harassment <laughs> of you, basically like trying to get you out of your, uh, your ward office. Like, right. and so, he did succeed. Yeah. You had to move, right? Yeah. You, so, um, you sort of, you, you, tra- you tracked with gentrification in the neighborhood <laughs> and that you had to go further Northwest in the neighborhood. Yeah. It, uh, just uh, in the middle of the campaign, uh, a week before Christmas, uh, we a got week before Christmas. A week this is before Christmas, shit right here. We get a notice uh, that you know we have to immediately vacate the apartment. Um, or the office. The office. That's right. And uh, we uh, packed up our things, and we're very lucky to uh, find a new office in uh, very short order. Um, and then he took down the sign, so he didn't even let us leave up a, a sign in the window of the office we were forced to vacate, telling folks where our new office was at. Scrooge, <laughs> Scrooge stuff. Well, and you know, not to harp on this too much, but like he owns a bunch of property on kind of the main thoroughfare and and the Milwaukee Avenue, which mm-hmm. is kind of the heart of Logan Square, and in these empty buildings, he was like putting up signs for your opponent. He owns the movie theater 
he put your opponent's signs up at the movie theater. I, I'm sorry. I, I, I walked in. I gave him money uh, to see Gremlins uh, once. <laughs> you know, but I no saw ethical his, consumption under capitalism. It's, it's okay. But your it's not under boycott. Yeah. Your, your opponent's <laughs> signs were there, and I'm like handing over my money. I'm just like, oh, this is bad. So anyway, so you you had this 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 race, but I mean, of course, like all of this stuff was going on, and yet you still carried the election by 20 points yeah and and look i think that you know neoliberal politics corporate politics the narrative is you can screw over the voters you can sell out the working class and as long as you have the money to get on tv or to you know slam your opponent in the mailboxes you will be able to win and i think that we we turn that logic upside down not just in my ward but in wards across the city of chicago right where we saw corporate democrats spending big and losing because at the end of the day if you reach the voters door to door if you reach the voters uh, with a compelling message uh, and a platform uh, and a political vision that speaks to their needs, uh, they're going to go with you every time. So you took a number of bold stances. I mean, not just at the neighborhood level, but there were things like uh, the No Cop Academy, which is a campaign that maybe you can explain, uh, that really turned Rahm Emanuel and much of the rest of the city's political class against you. Yes. So, you know, my praxis is to stand with workers' movements, to stand with our social movements for social and economic justice. I believe that people need to lead their own liberation. And so if I'm going to, you know, be an ally to the movement for black lives, I need to listen to, you know, black folks at the head of that movement that have been directly impacted by police violence. And what that has meant is that that has put me at odds many times with the establishment at City Hall. So when activists with a group called Asada's Daughters, when activists uh, with the movement for black lives came to my ward office and said, well, actually, no, it started before then, right? I'm very much online. So I'm on Twitter and I'm scrolling through my Twitter feed. Um, for and- <laughs> good or for ill, you are very much online. <laughs> uh, and so I'm scrolling through my Twitter feed and I get a uh, tweet about uh, young people taking over a train, uh, taking over a train on the Chicago Transit Authority on the L uh, and doing a teaching on the train about the Cop Academy. And I like it. I retweet it. And shortly thereafter, the activists reach out to me and they say, hey, We want to meet with you. They come to my office and they say, you know, we're leading a campaign against the police academy. We think that we're abolitionists and we think that instead of the police getting $100 million for a new shooting range, a new swimming pool, instead we should invest that money in after school programs, job programs, education. That will be a better way of addressing public safety in the city. And that was for a new academy that would have been used to train police officers and had like, what you said, a pool and a a shooting range range, on the west side of Chicago. Yes. uh, So on the far western edge of the city. And one of the things that we have to understand is that in the history of the city of Chicago, the city has historically used its public institutions as engines of gentrification. And so when the University of Illinois at Chicago was built, they tore down tens of thousands of working poor people's homes to clear out an area just west of the loop and ready that for quote-unquote urban renewal, which of course we now call gentrification. Um, And that was very successful, right? The area right around UIC is now very affluent. Uh, When they built the existing police academy, they built it uh, by Jackson Avenue. So uh, Jackson is the same street that the Sears Tower is on. So they built it one mile west, almost precisely one mile west of where the Sears Tower is currently located. When they built it, that was known as the West Side. Now that area is called the West Loop, right? And so Chicago has a history of placing these institutions in areas 
uh, and then having that pave the way for development and gentrification displacement in that neighborhood. And you're just for those who don't live in Chicago and you say that used to be seen as the West Side, but now it's the West Loop. That would impl- uh, imply that the new title West Loop would be kind of like the West downtown, like That's the right. Western part of the the hit place, the place where you want to be, the, mm-hmm. the bougie part of the city. Yes, basically. precisely. And so now they're going to sell the existing police academy, right, which now sits on a very valuable piece of land, one mile west of the Sears Tower. Now they're going to sell that piece of land uh, to a very wealthy, uh, connected developer, and they're going to move that police academy even further west to an area that is overwhelmingly black, that is overwhelmingly working poor. And I suspect that they expect that that occupying force, that that police academy will play the same role that it did. And it's actually quite sad. You know, when I would hear some of my colleagues that supported this, uh, they would say, well, this is going to bring development. You know, uh, a sandwich shop is going to open up across the street because the new police academy there is there. And it's just so sad that that's the only investment, right? That's the only investment that the city of Chicago can bring to that community. And the other thing that for those that are uh, familiar with Chicago, just west of Chicago uh, on the western edge, the suburb that borders that borders us is Oak Park, which is a very affluent place. And so I think the concept here is maybe by placing this police academy here, we can have some of that development and wealth that exists in Oak Park spill over eastward into the west side of Chicago and continue to displace uh, working poor people from the city. Now, you voted— so there were multiple reasons to oppose this. <laughs> right. And, and there was a demand that was being put forward by these social movements, but it was one that was not taken up by very many people on the city council. I believe you were the only alderman to vote twice against it. Is that right? Right. So the first time that a vote came up to allow this to move forward in the city council, prior to this, I had spoken to a number of aldermen. My uh, you know, friends in the social movements had spoken to a number of aldermen, and I had heard from seven aldermen that had told me that they were going to vote no. And we start going down the roll call, and we're numbered one through 50 as wards, and I'm 35. And as it gets to me, it becomes very clear that I may be casting the only no vote. Um, and I did. But I made a commitment to our social movements. They had made a demand. Um, it was something that was percolating in the city of Chicago. And I cast that no vote. And immediately thereafter, people are just telling me. And of course, in the city of Chicago, you know, I have a lot of friends in social movements. I also have a lot of friends that are kind of political hacks and corporate Dems. Um, but they're, they're texting me and telling me, your career's over, basically. And, you know, the way that uh, some of my colleagues in the city council were looking at me was like dead men walking because here's the city of Chicago. There's a narrative about, you know, gun violence on the west side, on the south side. Uh, People are scared around issues of public safety. And here you are casting a vote against the police academy, which was being painted as an investment on the west side, an investment in public safety. And you're here casting this no vote, standing with social movements saying, no, rather than investing more money in policing, instead, let's invest more money in addressing the root causes of, uh, you know, crime and poverty in our communities. Um, and, and people just were totally shocked and appalled that I would do such a thing. Well, and you must have felt pretty isolated during that time. I mean, at one point after a vote, you were kicked off of the Latino caucus that, of the city council, which I have to say. That same evening. You know, it, it's really sad. The Latino caucus, you know, during my time as a member, and I'm once again a member, after a public outcry, You're back. they reinstated me. <laughs> You're back me. in the Latino um, club. <laughs> and so, um, you know, 
I had been pushing the Latino caucus to take stances around affordability because it's our neighborhoods that are being, you know, gentrified. I had pushed the Latino caucus to take issues on public education and standing with our teachers union because, you know, Latino students actually make up a majority in CPS. Uh, And I had been also pushing the Latino caucus to stand with undocumented immigrants and say we need to become a true sanctuary, no collaboration, uh, with uh, no collusion with, with, (laughs) sorry, I want to get that in there. Uh, with ICE, n- n- no case, no exception. Um, and the Latino caucus was, just, for the most part, the majority of membership, many of which are now actually gone, had no interest in those issues whatsoever. Um, but the same day that I cast a sole no vote against the police academy, a meeting is held without any prior notice uh, to me, without any due process. I am kicked out of the Latino caucus. And so did you feel, I mean, it, I don't know. If I were in your shoes, I certainly would find that very hard to take. I would find it very hard to be getting texted by my friends being like, your career is over. Like, you you know, I'd be like thinking about, well, maybe I can get, maybe I know somebody who has, you know, know somebody over at uh, you know, that other place where I used to work back in the day. I think, I think I saw somebody post on Facebook they're hiring. Like, were, were you f- having a kind of crisis moment? Yeah. That- well, to my actual friends, you know, that, that work uh, as consultants and work in politics on the Democratic side. I was trying to explain to them, no, you don't understand. This is a movement, right? And while we may not necessarily have uh, the hearts and minds of the city council and the corporate establishment, there are tens of thousands of people across the city of Chicago that believe strongly with the stance that I had taken. Um, And I saw that reflected in social media. I saw that reflected in the street, walking down the block, you know, in the neighborhood, downtown, and people saying like, Thank you so much for casting the sole no vote. That was really powerful. Um, So I I think when you understand that your role as an elected official is to stand with movements, that provides you with so much clarity. And in fact, it actually makes your job a lot easier. Um, And while it's true that uh, in many ways, being one out of 50 at City Hall this past term was often like swimming against the current. Right. And you're here swimming and there's all these other fishes swimming the opposite direction, bumping into you saying, turn around, turn around. You're going the wrong way. Um, I understood that that was not the extent of the world, right? I understood that there was something bigger uh, that I, you know, was connected to, um, and that was our grassroots movements. Well, nobody really talked about this at the time, but uh, Bernie Sanders came to Chicago in between the first round of the elections in February, the local elections in February, and the runoff in April. And when he came here, he started his rally with activists from both from your own neighborhood of Logan Square who are anti-gentrification activists but also an activist from the No Cop Academy uh, campaign and I felt like that was a vindication I mean you had been this lone voice on the city council to vote against the Cop Academy twice and yet here's Bernie Sanders on the presidential uh, you know on on the stump and he, he starts his rally with somebody who gets up and speaks about the No Cop Academy yeah I mean I think um in many ways, that was vindicating. I think, too, it was powerful to see how uh, Chicago's policing strategy and how we invested money in public safety, uh, and particularly around the Cop Academy, became a central focus point of the mayoral campaign. Um, and it was powerful to see how Bernie Sanders used his campaign uh, to, you know, lend uh, some strength to the No Cop Academy campaign. And one of the things I do want to make very clear is that, you know, while I have faced 
um, some pushback and backlash from the corporate establishment at City Hall for casting the sole vote against the Cop Academy that pales in comparison to what black youth have faced in the city of Chicago in terms of police violence. It pales in comparison to what activists have faced um, historically and contemporaneously in the city of Chicago. Um, But also at the same time, I think it's an example of what is possible when you have an elected official, whether that be Bernie Sanders or myself, that is committed to using whatever little bully puppet we have, whatever institutional power we have uh, to amplify the voices of the grassroots towards a broader, uh, larger project for change. So I think you've been partially vindicated by that uh, incident we're talking about with Bernie coming to Chicago, but also vindicated in that there are five other members (laughs) of the Democratic Socialists of America who are going to be joining you very soon on the Chicago City Council. So can you talk about your feelings about this wave of socialist elected officials uh, in Chicago and uh, what's the what's the plan? It's a beautiful day Um, (laughs) and there's a lot of opportunity. Um, But I think we also have to recognize um, that there have been moments when we felt like we've been here before. And most recently, that was in 2007 in the city of Chicago. There was an ordinance that was brought up called the Big Box Living Wage Ordinance. And that would have created what at the time was a living wage in the city, $10 an hour and $3 an hour in health benefits. And it would have applied to businesses like Big Box Stores, Target and Walmart uh, that had a billion or more in sales per year. And the ordinance passed it was repealed by Daly after he got a call from Walmart. Uh, Walmart moved into the city, and in response, the Chicago Federation of Labor and Progressive Labor Unions led a massive effort to ensure that a number of incumbents lost. And at that point in time, we saw a similar amount of turnover in the city council, and a whole new crop of quote-unquote progressives were elected, and immediately thereafter, they were co-opted by Daly. Um so, so you're looking out for, for fake friends. <laughs> no, but what I'm saying is, is that, you know, we have to remember um, that, one, there's going to be attempts to, to co-opt us, that they're going to try and divide us. Uh, when I entered the city council, I reached out like a good organizer to all 50 of my colleagues and said, hey, I want to get coffee. I want to sit down. Let's do a one-on-one. And I got 31 uh, responses and sat down with 31 aldermen. And the number of them that told me um, that, you know, one of them actually told me, you, you seem like a winner. You seem like you like to win. And, you know, these folks that you're allying yourself with, you know, the grassroots collaboratives of the world, which is a, you know, grassroots group in the city of Chicago, CTU, you know, they're, they're not going to be able to take you where you want to go. Um, and, uh, and he basically called them fake friends. He's like, you know, they're going to applaud you and you're going to go to the rally and you're going to speak. But the moment you do something they don't like, you're going to be dead to them and they're going to throw you under a bus. And so you need to make real friends. Um, and he wasn't the only, I'm not going to name names, but, um, he wasn't the only alderman that essentially, you know, tried to say, join us. Right. Um, and so I think that, you know, a similar thing, uh, is going to be attempted now with, you know, our, our new friends elected to the city council. And we also have to understand, you know, it's not just the six democratic socialists. We also had a number of people that are very left-leaning, very progressive, also elected at the same time to the Chicago city council. Um, so I think now the challenge ahead of us is let's keep together. Let's build a fighting force on the city council. And whether that's six of us, seven of us, eight of us. Uh, 10 of us, however many we can get together that are committed to standing with the grassroots, let's act strategically and collectively uh, to, you know, expand our struggle. And so what are some of the things that would be on the agenda of that group of progressive people? I mean, like, uh, you may not might not have specific policies you're going to be pushing or whatever, but like, in what 
general area are you going to be? I mean, like obviously affordable housing was an important part of your campaign. It was an important part of other people's campaigns. There was a, a general uh, platform of the Chicago Democratic Socialists of America that was calling for uh, things like funding for education, taxing the rich, uh, immigrant rights, and affordable housing. I mean, what, what are the things that are going to be in motion around those demands? So you named a few, uh, most simply addressing police brutality, police misconduct, uh, making sure that we're bringing in some level of civilian oversight. Uh, the vast majority of us that were elected to uh, the city council as socialists support CPAC, which is a Civilian Police Accountability Council, which is a grassroots demand that is actually rooted uh, in the Black Panther Party uh, that wants to create in a fully democratic, fully elected uh, civilian body to oversee the police and institute community control. We also want to fight for progressive revenue. We want to tax the rich to be able to fully fund our public schools and fix the potholes and provide for all the things our city should be providing for. That means things like a commercial lease tax. So right now the city leads the U.S. in corporate relocations. Um, And interestingly enough, it's because corporate America is taking climate change very seriously. Uh, There's actually actuarial scientists and uh, consultants that are brought on by Fortune 500 companies uh, to consult uh, these corporations as to where they should relocate. And they tell them, hey, guess what? If you want to ride out climate change, you should go to the city of Chicago because uh, it's a global uh, city uh, located on the largest freshwater resource in the world. And it's not going to be underwater. Uh, and it's a great place uh, to open up shop. So the city right now leads the uh, the nation in corporate relocations. And we want to make sure that that wealth uh, is being leveraged and redistributed to help the west side, to help the south side. So one way we could accomplish that would be a commercial lease tax for the central business district. Uh the commercial lease tax that exists in New York City brings in about $800 million a year uh, for uh, city services. Since taking office uh, in your first term, you have instituted a number of, I think, interesting ways of doing progressive local governance. Can you talk about what that's looked like? Because I think what you've done in the 35th Ward could probably be replicated in other places. Yeah, in the 35th Ward, we have uh, what we call people power initiatives. Uh, And to date, those are three programs that we run through my office. So they're staffed uh, by the 35th Ward office, and they seek to show people's ability to govern themselves and to collectively come together and make decisions. We don't need the Donald Trumps of the world. We don't need the Bezos of the world. We don't need the Bruce Rauners of the, the world. Mark Fishmans of the world. The Mark Fishmans of the world telling us uh, what our community should look like or how we should live our lives. We together collectively from the grassroots from below uh, can determine our own destiny. And what we do is any zoning change, so any development decision that requires my support to move before the Chicago City Council must go through a community process where first there are organizations that are made up of neighbors uh, and residents of the district that review the zoning change request, review the development. They will work with the developer uh, to make recommendations. And then after that initial stage, it then proceeds to a community assembly that is bilingual, uh, that has to be accessible to working people. And I'm very proud that we most recently had a community assembly that was attended by upwards of 500 people. Uh, we had childcare there. We had uh, translation there with equipment. Uh, and it was to discuss the development of a city-owned parking lot uh, at, to be redeveloped as 100 units uh, of 100% affordable housing. And the community overwhelmingly supported that. 
Yeah, I was there, and it was an incredible thing to see over 500 people in this room. And I think the vote was uh, 70%, 77% in favor of this development. And it's a development that is in this parking lot that is right in the heart of Logan Square. So, again, right in the heart of the most uh, you know, the, the, the most rapidly gentrifying district uh, in the city. And, and you've sort of – It's across the street from the Logan Square Blue Line entrance. It's an underutilized parking lot. And the city initially, uh, Mayor Ron Manuel's administration, wanted to sell the lot for five, six million dollars and then turn it over to a private developer that would, at one point, one city official was floating the idea to me of putting in one of those like Amazon stores that Bezos is opening up. And he's like, wouldn't that be great? And I'm like, no, affordable housing. <laughs> um, so, um, you know, the, the city, uh, the, the mayor's administration had other plans for it, but the community marched canvassed, organized, and said, we want to see this lot used for 100% affordable housing. And so I supported them in that effort. Uh, We worked with a nonprofit affordable housing developer. And after many years of organizing, we're able to put together the financing necessary uh, to make this possible. And under our community process, we then proceeded to a community meeting. And people said, there's no way that you can have a meeting in an overwhelmingly white community which Logan Square, particularly around the Blue Line, has now become, uh, uh, there's no way you can have a meeting around bringing in affordable housing to an overwhelmingly affluent and white community and have it go well. Um, But what we showed is that an organized community is a powerful community. Um, And we spoke to our neighbors, we knocked on doors, we rallied. um, And that was represented by the overwhelming uh, number of people that came out to that meeting and said, yes, build this here, build it now. Uh, So that is now moving forward in the Chicago City Council. And we're really excited to see that happen. Uh, But the community process uh, doesn't just, you know, uh, include those types of developments like the one we just talked about. It also included a boutique hotel being built across the street. Um, And with that, the community process led to the developer signing a community benefits agreement that said, yes, I'm going to build this boutique hotel, but I'm going to hire locally. And in addition to hire locally, every job there will pay a minimum of 15 Uh, And actually, a majority of the jobs will pay a minimum of $17 an hour, which is what we calculate as a Logan Square living wage. So that was made possible through the community-driven zoning process. So that was a concession that this wealthy developer had to make to the community because they were organized. And through this process, they were given the power to have the say over that zoning change, which is a stark contrast to what happened just down Milwaukee Avenue in another ward uh, where the incumbent alderman there, Joe Moreno, would take tens of thousands in contributions from big developers in exchange to give them whatever zoning change they wanted. Um, and as a result of that, uh, you know, we saw the election of a DSA member, Daniel Espada, there in the first ward. So those are ways that I seek to use the power that I have as alderman uh, to build socialism from the bottom uh, and from the left and show the ability that we have to govern ourselves. That's great. <laughs> I was, I was going to ask another question. That's a perfect way to end it. So Alderman Rosa, thanks a lot. Thank you, Micah. The Vast Majority is produced by Sarah Hurd at Studio 10 in Chicago. You can subscribe to The Vast Majority and to all the Jacobin Radio podcasts on iTunes or Stitcher. And you can always read us at jacobinmag.com.